This is Alexander Sadig and you are listening to Stars End Podcast. Dan, what do you think? You haven't really Well, I'm I'm now I'm I've just been thrown by the phrase hive mind. <laughs> so uh like would would we should we delegate psychohistory to the Borg to the Borg figure out? and welcome to season three of Star's End, a podcast dedicated to Isaac Asimov's classic sci-fi series, Foundation. We are reading Asimov's fiction this season, but we'll keep you informed on show news for Apple TV's season two. While we all wait for that, the three of us will be here with our own inimitable take on Asimov's universe. Please join us. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to episode 12 of season three of the Stars End podcast. Today, we're going to wrap up Forward the Foundation, taking us all the way to the beginning of the original series. Actually, there's a little bit of overlap because there's an epilogue at the end, which takes place just after some of the events that we have already seen in the book Foundation. So let's do a little bit of a recap. I'm not going to go through every single one of these 34 subchapters, but um, we see uh, an older Harry. He is now 70 years old, although this chapter is going to jump around in time a little bit, and sometimes a little bit confusingly. But at the beginning, he is 70 years old and he's limping his way into the library. He's going to use a skitter, one of those little carts, I guess, like they have in the supermarket for people like my dad who need a little extra help getting around. And he overhears three men looking at a map and talking about the fate of the empire. And this is pretty significant because in his mind, he calls them hook nose, baldy and red cheeks uh, and red cheeks turns out to be, uh, we're going to find out eventually a man named Stetton Palver, uh, an ancestor of Prem Palver, the first speaker of the second foundation during some uh, important events. And it's of course, interesting to note that Prem Palver is described as having round and ruddy cheeks and Stetton Palver has red cheeks. So I guess that's a that's not a coincidence. Uh, I also was interested in the name Stetton because isn't Lord Stetton the Lord of Calgon uh, later on? Oh, yeah. Good catch. Yeah, I, think I don't that's know. Right. Asimov just liked the name or if he did that for a reason. I don't really know why. It's it'll be a very common name in twelve thousand years. <laughs> Twenty thousand years. <laughs> Everyone's we thought it was so original, and then in my kids' class there were four Stettons. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! All right, so um, we see the library. We meet the chief librarian. We see Harry in his library office, and he flashes back to a few years before when Wanda shows some amazing signs of. Uh, mental powers um she's kind of left alone because rach is on a book tour he's written a book about his life growing up in doll and he's off lecturing about that and a little sister has been born bellis so wanda's kind of alone and she wanders into hugo's office and to entertain her he shows her the prime radiant and she kind of looks at a piece of it and goes something's not right there which is pretty amazing because she's 12 years old at the time and, and, and Asimov tells us that we are at the cusp of a psychohistorical revolution. So Hugo goes to tell Harry, and Harry immediately thinks of Daniil's mental powers and uh, concludes that Wanda has read Hugo's mind. And that's why she knew that there was something wrong in the plan, because Hugo subconsciously knew that there was something wrong in the plan, and Wanda picked up on it and saw it. 
Harry is trying to figure out what the deal is with Wanda. He actually goes to have her genome sequenced, which was a kind of a, an interesting, um, it was an interesting little, little picture of it taking weeks and actually not having any easy answers. I couldn't help thinking of the movie Gattaca where, you know, you just kind of plug your thumb into a thing and your genome is sequenced immediately. And they can tell you everything that, uh, that you need to know. It was. Well, now, uh, so hmm? now we can spit in a tube and throw it in the mail. And, and yeah. I think get, get back results quicker than this. But it, I thought actually, though, it was pretty realistic that you wouldn't just be able to look at a genome and figure out uh, where the mind reading is. So I, I appreciated that from Asimov. He's already thinking at this point about finding more people like Wanda and having them form the core of his second foundation. So we're getting a lot of thinking about the second foundation already. We move a little bit forward from that flashback to where he meets the librarian and we start to see a movement inside the library. I, I'm sure you guys will appreciate this, that a lot of this story is about getting funding. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he has to convince the board of the library to fund him. They don't want to. They got other stuff to do. An inordinate amount of this chapter is actually dedicated to, to the funding. Uh, we see Hugo dying. He's only 55 years old. He's dying from overwork, I guess, from overdedication to the plan. Um, Harry tells Hugo about his plan for the second foundation and Hugo smiles and thinks great idea and immediately dies, which is sad. Goodbye, Hugo. We, we, we hardly knew ye. Um, again, more about the funding. We meet the new emperor, Aegis the 14th. Uh, he seems like a nice but ineffectual guy who can't help Harry with money. The librarians are impressed, but it's just nothing because uh, oh, they're impressed because because uh, the, all, the only thing the emperor can do for Harry is go visit the library with him as a private citizen. And that impresses the librarians, but not enough to actually cough up any money. So uh, connections don't help. Uh, we do see the decline of Trantor in another scene. Harry's off for a walk. There are roving gangs of thugs. At this point, by the way, Wanda um, has had her, this is six years after her first meeting with Hugo. So she's now 18 years old. She knows about the second foundation plan. And suddenly, uh, as Harry's ruminating about all this, eight muggers appear to, uh, I guess, to steal his money. They seem to know who he is. Um, he's waving his cane around, but he's in trouble when Rachel arrives and uh, does some twisting. And he has his Dalite knives, which he is not supposed to have. They are supposed to be illegal. But he actually kills a couple of these guys, wounds a few more of them. I mean, at one point, he's, he throws a knife and it hits this guy in the throat. And Rach says, I want my knife back and pulls the knife out of the guy's throat. Quite violent. Anyway, Rach then tells Harry that uh, he knows the attack was no accident, but also that Rach is going to go to Santani to, to teach at a university and take the family with him. And he wants Harry to go with him. Um, Harry doesn't want to go. And Wanda decides to stay behind with Harry and help him out with psychohistory and keep him company. So the family goes off. Just like a good three laws robot. Just like a good, she is not a robot, Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> She's his granddaughter. I mean, adopted granddaughter. I mean, he adopted her father, whatever. Anyway, but yes, just like a good three laws robot. As we know, uh, robots, uh, three laws robots, indistinguishable from the best of human beings. So uh, she also mentions in passing that Bellis, her little sister, does not have any of these mental powers. So the family leaves. What else happens? Um, a couple of trials. Another another mugging. Harry, with Wanda's help, tries to fend off the attack. Yeah, there's a trial with a magistrate. Uh, Wanda is trying to use her powers to push the magistrate into getting a certain result. Harry gets off, but Wanda is upset because she couldn't actually help. She wasn't she wasn't able to use her powers well enough to help. Harry decides to bring Wanda to the emperor to try to push him for credits. That also doesn't help, though he suggests going to visit uh, Elon Musk and ask him for some money and other rich people. That also doesn't work. Uh, it also doesn't work four times, in fact. Uh, Harry then finally has his meeting with uh, Stetton Palver, who he had asked to come to visit in the office. And uh, Stetton just mentions that uh, his grandfather, Jeremus, knew Harry, and, and apropos of nothing. Uh, although he's already dead and he's two years younger than Harry. So that makes Harry feel old. Uh, turns out that uh, Stetton is a twister, even though he's not from Helicon. 
So Harry immediately hires him to be his bodyguard. And uh, they're walking around. They see litter. Harry tells a guy, hey, pick up your litter. And uh, that's a mistake because that guy turns out to be a security agent. There's a big melee. The whole thing was a trap. Palver twists around. But uh, in the end, they get arrested again. This time, there's a much longer trial. The security officer tells a bunch of lies. But working together, although they don't realize it, Palver and Wanda are able to push the the security guy to make him tell the truth. He see, he sees the eyes and hears the voice, tell the truth, tell the truth. And, I, and it's really the two of them working together uh, because as it turns out, as we're going to find out, Stetton also has these uh, mental powers. Harry is acquitted after a big speech by the judge. Then we meet the new treat, the new chief librarian. She wants to get rid of Harry. She, he, he wants to get rid of Harry. Um, she thinks he's, she, he thinks Harry is a liability to the library because of his, reputation for getting mugged and having trials. Wanda, meanwhile, is working on the equations of psychohistory now, and she discovers that for the yin of Terminus, they need the yang of the second foundation. Um, then they get a phone call. There is fighting in Santani. Uh, the phone call gets cut off. Harry calls up the Aegis to try to help, and we find out that Rach has been killed defending the university in Santani, and the ship that the family was on has gone missing, and Wanda says she can't feel them and we can only assume that the worst has happened to harry's family this is very tragic i mean harry is losing people left and right he loses hugo rach is killed the rest of the family is killed he's already mourning doors it's it's actually quite sad although at this point wanda and stetton realize that they can read each other's minds and their sort of romance begins they're going to get together romantically they tell harry uh, and they go off trying to find others we go back to the chief librarian and Stetton and Wanda to working together, push him to approve everything Harry wants, all the office space he wants for the team, everything. And we can assume that the project is going to continue unmolested at this point. And then we meet uh, in the last chapter, Boralurin, and we say, hey, that's the guy from the other from the other story. He was uh, he was on foundation. He's the guy who taught Salver Harden just enough psychology to be dangerous, but not enough to be really dangerous. And it turns out that Alurin um, has mentalic powers, just like Palver and Wanda. I guess the, 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 the main book closes with Wanda asking where the second foundation is, a question we're going to be asking for another three books. And the answer, of course, is it's at star's end, as the equations of psychohistory tell us. And then there's the epilogue, we see Harry after his next trial, the one that he and Gal Dornick had, uh, had been put on for sedition. Uh, everybody's gone off to Terminus. Harry's sad that he couldn't save Aegis. But it uh, turns out that the members of the Second Foundation pushed the Commission for Public Safety and the Commissioner Chen to send them off to Terminus, which had been uh, a planet that had been discovered by the librarians way back in the beginning of all of this. And Harry thinks about his life. And his last word is doors, and he is found slumped over his desk with the prime radiant in his hand, and the prime radiant is sent off to Terminus for Gal Dornick. For, well, that's weird, because actually it's the second foundation that has the prime radiant, but there's more than one prime radiant. And that it wraps up forward the foundation. They got everybody to Terminus. They killed off all the major characters. What is there left to say? I mean, it, 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 was, it was a pretty grim story especially as related to trantor which just seems to be absolutely in collapse yeah so what did you guys think of uh of this chapter it it's yeah. it's it's worse than hamlet not, not, <laughs> not only do all the major characters die but like all of you know all of denmark is collapsing in on itself <laughs> and who's um, left to tell the story you know? the yeah. last year you go i knew him well <laughs> there, there's no, there's no fortinbras there's nothing um so yeah it was it was sad it was it was kind of depressing it's as sad as asimov ever gets i think this is the most downer of an ending which we get which is natural since asimov i guess himself was dying and was probably not super chipper about that fact um yeah, I mean, the, the whole mortality motif is yeah. here in spades. I mean, it is, it is poignant, right? The way, the way in which Harry sort of fades away. 
um, and and records this sort of last epilogue. Um, and you know, he's this this little you know he's, he's sort of survived to see everyone leave him. Yeah. And just entrust his entrust his his legacy to history. Um, it's it's a it's a kind of a poignant cold comfort, even though it's you know it's really not like anything else in Asimov's uh, uh, writings that I can think of offhand. Um, but very Mark Twain esque. Now that I think about yeah. it, and oh boy, was he bitter toward the end. Yeah, yeah, especially after his daughter died. And and for asthma and, and for for Harry, I mean, I I just I find myself at the end thinking, does he even really care about the foundations anymore? Like, he's just completely he's been stripped of everyone and everything, and you know, he's thinking about Doris, which is romantic. But does he? I I, I mean, I, I guess he continued to he, he stayed with the project and continued you know, saw it all the way through and completed the plan and set everything up. But he does he doesn't. He's not happy at the end. He's, yeah. he's and I, I just wonder, you know, is that reflective? I mean, it must be reflective of Asimov's feeling at the time, knowing that he was going to yeah, die. Well, and of course, as we never get tired of saying, this was published posthumously. Yeah, who was the, uh, uh, was it Hugo who was talking about um, doing things that made other people happy and um, it's other people's happiness that lasts because your happiness doesn't survive your death? Yeesh. Where was that bit? I don't remember. It must be Hugo, right? Yeah, I would think. Although Hugo isn't Hugo's way more about the math than about making people happy. Yeah, I mean Hugo was was just singularly dedicated to the plan. Like it's all he cared about. He had no companions, he had no hobbies, he had no life outside of the plan at all. And that's eventually what killed him. You know, there are there are a lot of mathematicians who are like that, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, academia can be pretty bleak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think in academia, you also get a lot of the people who are single-mindedly fixated on their whatever their discipline might be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, so that, that rings true. And, uh, you know, oftentimes the people who are really able to make some foundational kind of uh, advances in their field are people who have time because they don't have family commitments or, or other, you know, and not, not universally, but, but uh, you know, it's, it's noticeable and makes sense. Like if you're if you live at work, then you're going to have more accomplishments at work than mm -hmm. someone who yeah. has a normal family life. I mean, I met in my previous career quite a few extremely wealthy hedge fund managers. Yeah. And um, I remember there was one right right at the, uh, I was just starting a new job and I met this guy, I won't, won't name any names, uh, but he had $150 million that he'd accumulated in his career, 65 years old. And he was starting a new hedge fund. And I said to him, you've got $150 million. Like, why do you want to keep doing this? And his answer was, if I wasn't doing this formally, I'd be doing it anyway, because it's all I do. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd just be managing my own money and I'd be, nothing would change. He was just wasn't going to stop. And I, you know, you saw, a lot of these guys who had made just, you know, money to where the numbers didn't matter anymore and they would have yachts or whatever, and they'd be off in a, you know, like a Mediterranean sailing vacation, but they'd have the yacht outfitted with, you know, satellite phones and screens, and they'd be sitting in front of the screens the whole time because they could not take themselves away from it. And, you know, it, it is possible that if they hadn't been as dedicated they would not have had the success that they had, but kind of you, at some point you ask yourself, like, what is the purpose of all of that success? It's just to, you know, accumulate more. And I mean, I guess they were truly, that was where they were happy was doing those things, but. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, amassing wealth can be its own game. Oh, it absolutely is a game. Look, I have my own theories about that and I'm no psychologist, but I'm not, and I won't go into that, but you know, I, I, I do think there is an element, well, I will go into it. I think there's an element of insecurity 
uh, where uh, a lot of those guys feel like there's a tremendous element of luck that got them the success that they have. And they have to keep on proving over and over again that it wasn't luck, that they can keep doing it, that every day they have to wake up and do it again in order to prove to everyone else and themselves and their mothers that they really are that successful and not just lucky. And um, it can it can be quite sad, actually, to see someone like that and, you know, wonder why they have all that money and you don't. But whatever, it's a it's all other. No, but that's the reason why, because it's, it's the insane dedication that that they have. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, we, we get that. And this, this stuff with Harry isn't the first time we've seen that kind of working oneself to death sort of thing. I mean, uh, back when we were with Ebling Miss, right. And he was actually literally being, being pushed by the mule to, to kill himself in the search for the second foundation, we kind of got that picture. This is a little bit more, uh, more of a natural view that we get with, um, you know, Hugo really sort of working himself to death at a more natural pace. And, and also Harry's not exactly working himself to death, but making lots of sacrifices along the way. You know, it's a, it's a realistic portrait. I mean, it's, um, even though none of us have liked Harry, <laughs> really it's um you know it's a really interesting kind of character portrait of you know coming here at the end and realizing that setting up this grand sweep of history and having him him be this kind of mythical figure to later generations had a real personal cost for him um and you know i i appreciated that uh even though it's not fun to kind of read to the end here I mean, it does make you kind of ask the question, does the, does the grand sweep of history matter? Is it real? Is it, is it, I mean, I guess Harry feels that it is because he's developed a tool that makes it real and, and he's begun to test it. Well, yeah. I mean, if you, it's the, you, you love the trolley problem. It's sort of the trolley problem. Again, if you have the opportunity to, to, to prevent, you know, 30,000 years of suffering, versus 1000 years don't you have to pull the switch <laughs> although part of the question that we've never really looked at is how far do they calculate out like because maybe after the 30000 years humanity could have had uh, you know a couple billion years as years of success but if if this if the the plan works maybe everything comes crashing down at year 1500 mm-hmm these are the questions you're not supposed to ask. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> These are the right. questions that are not contemplated when you're okay. first writing something yeah. like this. No, That's seriously, true. you're right. Because like, if he saves 30,000, like, like, how do you measure pluses and minuses over those, you know, what, what, what's going to happen in a hundred thousand years? Yeah. I, I yeah. think you're just sort of saying, well, I'm going to set up the second foundation and I'm going to trust that whatever the second foundation does is going to be somehow stable for a very, very, very long period of time. And it's going to be for the benefit of humanity. And of course, when and if we get to the sequels, we'll see that uh, Asimov does wrestle with some of these questions. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, the second foundation is not particularly seen in a positive light in the, yeah. in the sequels. And their solution, the kind of uh, mentalocracy, uh, is no longer all that appealing. And then his other solution, which, you know, you know, the Gaia solution, I mean, I'm not sure how appealing that is either. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, yeah, you could see Asimov wrestling with these ideas, though. Yeah, well, um, so, so a couple, couple of comments on that. You, you say that the, the, the second foundation isn't all that appealing later on. The last third of this, I mean, there is some real supervillain crap going on. You know, we're going to go ask for somebody for money. And we're just going to mind control them into doing things yeah, our way. I mean, this is just... Um, for the good of humanity, Joseph. <laughs> yeah, Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> what happens after 31,000 years, right? We don't know. Um, For the good of humanity, you will write me a check. <laughs> um, I get that in the mail all the time. <laughs> what was the other thing? Okay, well, well what, one night, what, one night at nice aspect, as you know, we talked about many times how Harry just does not seem smart enough to put psychohistory together. Yeah. But we finally get the inkling. Oh, you know, we, we've got Wanda. We've got um, Stetton and 
you know, now they're going to work together. And, and so we're going to have, and he doesn't use the term, but they're going to, you know, you're going to have a gestalt of minds working on it. And I can see a gestalt of minds being able to figure this, this stuff out as opposed to, well, Harry. I mean, I sort of see it as the, um, the analogy, the, the analogous situation to me is kind of uh, Einstein where, you know, Einstein's field equation is a nearly miraculous accomplishment in physics, but there were no solutions to that differential equation when Einstein first published it. Mm -hmm. Now, armies of physicists and mathematicians have attacked the field equations, and there are literally infinite solutions. There are whole classes of solutions with infinite, uh, you know, but Einstein didn't do that himself. He was the you know, he was the inventor and then the engineers came along and, and, and engineered it. And I feel like that the, there's no reason why the Selden project shouldn't be the same way that Harry had the inspiration of psychohistory and, and he and Hugo together kind of developed it, but the, the massive engineering project, there's no reason why that can't be the result of thousands of people working on it at the same time. Mm. Uh, yeah. I think that sounds like a good analogy. Thank it, you. It, and it does, it does <laughs> seem to be the way that it's kind of presented. There, there's a few inconsistencies in the way this is described over the course ah. of all these books, but but as a general picture, it does seem to be something like that. Um, I, I have a kind of a basic question I'd like to get out of the way because it's been kind of annoying me. I okay. don't know if I've misread something, but like at the end, you know, Harry is said to be alone because Wanda and Stanton Palver have gone off to Star's End. Yeah. But but Star's End is right there. Oh oh shh. Spoiler. Like what? <laughs> what 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 is he talking? Like I think on, there's was, a, there's was an it implication. First on after all, did, right? No, did, there's, did, a, there's an implication kind of that they have to cut themselves off from contact with him. Right. Okay, so, so it's that sort they of can a, work on this. It's sort of a virtual Star's End. And yes. I, yeah, and I think also that Asimov wanted to leave the the mystery of star's end intact uh so that if you if you read the prequels oh, and then read the original yeah. books case, you know you would not have had that spoiled is, for is you reading is reading chronologically you yeah. would not know who darth vader's father was <laughs> at that time <laughs> and there's a, at least there's at least one thing that, that where he's saying you know okay here here's all my books and here's the order you should read them in and it's you know in world chronological hmm. So like, you know, Star's End, at that point, like Star's End could have been the office down the hall. Right. It could have been. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Except they, they couldn't have the, the noise of, the mental noise of normal humans disrupting their whatever it is that second foundationers do. But I got the impression that most of what they were doing was finding more second foundationers. Hmm. It's kind of walking around and opening their minds and identifying other second foundationers just just going to the most crowded mall and, yeah. and mentally <laughs> yelling come here <laughs> hanging out down at the food court and uh, yeah. <laughs> pulling in the other metallic people and on a planet of 40 billion people i guess even if a tiny percentage of them have these metallic powers you, you yeah, can you can find them yeah that's a big bell curve <laughs> it is that tail is going to be awfully fat yeah, I, I um, was really worried through through a lot of this that the the Stenton Wanda thing was going to skew in a eugenics direction, <laughs> and it never never quite does. Well, it doesn't, except that he is the distant ancestor of Prem Palver, who we know is one of the most powerful first speakers of the Second Foundation. So somehow they did manage to combine their genetic predisposition into like i'm trying to think how they address that in uh in second foundation and the sequels how they found new uh new second foundationers i think it was he was pretty explicitly not doing things by descent that that people who were descendants of second foundationers were not necessarily more likely to become i can't remember how they recruited I, I, I don't recall either that's worth looking into because yeah it is a it is a kind of a, a, a not very long step from 
genetic predisposition to eugenic planning. You know, I, I, I think Asimov probably would have stayed away from that if he could have. Yeah, although that that whole chapter about the where, where they're testing Wanda's genome is almost uh, seems sort of painful to me to read. It was, like, although satisfactorily enough, it comes out on the side of we can't really use that information. It's just uh, yeah, th- th- that's fine. But but stuff like you have sciatica because your genes are wearing down. Well, I, yeah, I, that was a bit strange. I, I think that's just nonsense. I mean, I could be wrong because God knows I'm no <laughs> I'm no geneticist, but. Yeah, that I, I noticed that I was reading through that today, and I noticed that, and I thought, really, is that a genetic thing that that you're? I feel like there was other other things along along that way, and and certainly there are things that you know I'm sure go wrong because your genes are wearing down, or you're you're just you're you're copying the same things over, and we're like a bad copy machine. But you know, disease isn't one of them. I don't think. That's interesting. Yeah, I did. I did notice that. That's that, that stood out today in my in my run through as I was taking notes on this thing. I wonder how the genetic aspect of mental abilities is going to be handled in the TV show. Hmm. Well, we have some hints, don't we? We do, because oh, we true. know that Salvor is Gal Dornick's daughter. So. There is some genetic component to it. There is uh, something. something <laughs> we'll see. Ho- hopefully that doesn't turn into a eugenics <laughs> program. <laughs> yeah, so really Salvor and Wanda have been mashed together, if you think about and it. And Gale to some extent. Yeah. And Gale to some extent. Yeah, I mean, I'm very curious what they're going to do with that. I mean, it seems pretty clear that that is going to be the origin of the second foundation. Mm-hmm. Although it, it, you know, it, that kind of interests me because it means that it's more or less unplanned mm-hmm. well the second foundation at least it seems like harry had already planned the second foundation and, and set it up on helicon right. but just that in his original plan it wasn't necessarily a society of mentalics since he was since unaware Gale's that power, such a thing existed. it seems yeah it seems to be a surprise to him so is there going to be some sort of struggle between Gale and Salver on the one side and Harry's second foundation on the other side? Are they going to just maybe, go and, uh, maybe, take it over? Maybe and, the like, two of them are going to set up Gaia. Uh, oh, maybe. I, I don't know how they're even going to get off of uh, the, what the name of the, I can't remember the, name of the planet, <laughs> the planet that they're on. There doesn't seem to be a ship Synax. available. Synax. Synax. They're going to, yeah. they're going to mentally reach out. And and signal to spaceships, come over here. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Who uh, says you need? To, who who says it, it weakens over 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 distance? We don't know. It's like a mentalic Uber. <laughs> well, that's all something to look forward to. Well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can could be season to... five of Babylon of season four, season five of Babylon five all over yeah. again. Please don't even don't even go there. But uh, if if it's bad, then we can roast it. If it's good, then we can then we can enjoy it. So we it's a no lose situation for us, except that we want the show to be good. So mm-hmm. we would lose that way. And again, I will stress how impatiently we are waiting for season two of this thing to come out. Yeah, and nice Mr. Goyer, TikTok. Yeah, it'd be nice if the producers could let us know that they're listening. Nice I if did- the I did see on Twitter that Kubra Sate Farah from season one wrote a book. And I, I tweeted on behalf of the podcast, I tweeted to her congratulations. And if she felt like coming on to plug her book, you know, she would be welcome to come on. And she, she said, thank you for your love and support. <laughs> <laughs> so I took that as a no. <laughs> I think that's a no. You know, there's a big time difference. I think she lives in London or possibly in India. And, uh, and well, we have the maximum time distance going, time difference going on here. We do. We've got like a ribbon going around the world here. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just saying, if Dan were any farther east, the time difference between us would start going down. Let me, let me set set this out right now. If anyone in our listenership is involved with the Foundation TV series in any way and happens to be in Taiwan right now and is raring to do an interview with me, I can come to your uh, place of work and personally do that interview. 
you can plug anything you'd like. We're here for you if you're in free Taiwan. advertising. And furthermore, I would say to people who may or may not be listening to this podcast that um, anyone who has thoughts about foundation or Asimov or science fiction, especially people who have points of view that may not match up with us and the guests that we've already had, I welcome that. I would love to get uh, somebody here who says, you know, you guys are looking at this thing entirely the wrong way. And here's what you should be looking at. I would, I would, I'm ready for that. Right. Come on and fight us. Bring it, fight us. (laughs) We're old and weak. We can't really fight back. So, (laughs) hey, speak for yourself. I'm a mean (laughs) twister. Ooh, a a solid twist kick to the guts. No, but seriously, I, I, uh, you don't have to be, um, you know, none none of us are anybody. You don't have to feel like you need to be uh, anybody. Just, just come on. Yes. We'll tell you how wrong you are. We'll gang up on you and tell you how wrong you are. So bring two friends. <laughs> bring two friends. Exactly. It'll be a melee. Well, so now that we've finished yes. all two prequels. All two of them. <laughs> how, how are your feelings about them in relationship to the, I guess, what you called the original series? I do call it that. Repeatedly. Foundation TOS? Yeah. Yeah. For lack of a better term. Yep. Well, I mean, I think they have their they have their um, they have their drawbacks. There, there is some very good stuff in there. I think that to, for me, the main thing that separates them from the original Foundation series is that I feel like the original Foundation series was written as a bunch of stories, uh, with whatever their relationship might be to the decline and fall of the Roman Empire and things that Asimov wanted to say from a science fiction standpoint. I do feel like the prequels were really about the original series. They were not very much standalone science fiction on their own. They don't really have, and I think we've mentioned this uh, other times, if you read some of these stories, do they stand on their own even as a story? Most of them, I think, don't. But they are here almost like Tolkien's indexes to Lord of the Rings. You know, they're, they're extra material about the original they sometimes change things about it. They enhance things about it. But I don't think that they stand on their own. For example, I, I, would, I would say this. If Asimov had wanted to actually start the Foundation series with Harry Seldon at the age of 32, instead of where he actually did start it, that these first two books would have been very different. I'm not sure exactly how they would have been very different, but I think they would have been very different from what they are. Oh yeah, that's. I, I think that's absolutely true. He's clearly writing towards an endpoint, which, I mean, maybe maybe prequels always have to do that, right? But um, sure. but this is but this is maybe more obvious than than some. Yeah, well, I think uh, you know a tricky piece of prequels is to engender drama where, on, on some sense, you know yeah. that, that 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 there's a, there's an outcome. Right. Like you know, I've had discussions with friends about, you know, not wanting another Star Trek series set in the 23rd century because, well, we, 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 we've seen the 24th century. So any, any huge, um, any huge threatening plot point, you know how it's got to resolve itself. Yeah. You know, honestly, in general, it's why I, I prefer sequels rather than prequels because prequels, you know, there, there's, it's, it's hard to get a, a, kind of suspense that really invests you in it at least for me so well it has to be smaller kinds of suspense right yeah Um, you you can't do the world you you can't do the world ending things because you know what the ultimate outcome of that is but uh, if you're good at writing things on a personal level yeah you know you, you, you you got a shot i thought enterprise did a pretty good job of that i mean you had to know at some level that the Zindi thing could not end in the destruction of Earth, right? Within the universe of Star Trek, because we knew yeah. that Earth was there. <laughs> but they did a pretty good job of keeping you in suspense, not just of how that was going to be resolved, but what it was going to mean for the individual characters. And I thought they did a very good job of, of kind of showing you 
how traumatic it was, particularly for Archer, mm-hmm. who I thought spent a lot of time dealing with kind of PTSD after that. I mean, when he came back to Earth, he was very unhappy with the things that he had done and, uh, you know, the things that he'd experienced. And they, and they really kind of showed a bunch of that. And I thought that was very good. And they also, I think part of what facilitated that was, although we did see Klingons and Romulans a little bit, they kind of took us off into parts of space that we hadn't explored in the other shows. So like the whole expanse, well, that's not even there anymore by the time Enterprise is done with it because they've cleaned it up. Mm-hmm. So, um, I thought they did a reasonable job prequeling there. I mean, I have yeah. my complaints yeah. about yeah, yeah, the bore again no. or whatever, but they that, that that was all right. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. There, there, the the main thing that bugged me about Enterprise was that they had these tropes early on about how stuff didn't work as well as we thought it was going to, and then like five or ten episodes in it became the very standard thing where they would, instead of saying, uh, you know, shields are down to 30%, they'd say hull plating, whatever the hell that is, is down to 30%. Polarized hull plating. Yeah. It's exactly the same story structure. It's just they're throwing different words in there. You know, that, that's different from being terrified of the transporter or that neat thing that they did uh, early on where the guy was transported and he had leaves stuck in him because you know it, it just wasn't very good technology yet um, but then they left that behind so with with these two foundation prequels then what is our what are our stakes just for harry personally and like we well, we can see the cost that it exacts on him but he's not a really lovable character anyway so <laughs> so it doesn't matter <laughs> i don't know I mean, I guess what would have been interesting, although I'm not sure how you would have done this, you know, what, are the, you know, what is it that we were interested in coming into prequels? Well, we, we had this guy, Harry Seldon, who was this sort of Einstein-like character, and we really didn't know anything about him, and we didn't know how he developed psychohistory. Yeah. And so there is something of an attempt to describe how psychohistory was developed, but really the important parts of the development of psychohistory are sort of hand-waved over. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we discovered some achaotic equations. Oh, we, you know, we, I, we still don't really come out of it knowing, and maybe it would be impossible to do this, but we come out of it not really knowing how it, how it happened. Yeah. I think if you're going to go into too much detail, you'd actually have to invent it and then write about it. <laughs> you're probably right. I mean, it's a, I, again, it's a big ask. That, yeah. that, that, that would have been a feather in Asimov's cap if he had actually <laughs> ended the series by, by inventing it. Yeah, you think the computer communication satellite's impressive. Look at this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In your ear. In your ear, Arthur C. Clarke. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I guess I, I somehow the portions of the book where he is kind of struggling to work things out, which is a big part of what I think I wanted to see, they, they fell pretty flat for me. Mm. And I think Asimov preferred doing the travelogue and doing the mysteries because it really he really had given himself an impossible task to show us how this giant project would have would have come together yeah but i think yeah we um a, a tricky bit is that in prelude yeah we get a lot of uh we we get a, you know, a lot of new stuff and about the development of psychohistory, but in prelude, carries nowhere. Right. Right. Then when we get to forward, it, it's all conflated with the mortality stuff. And then Asimov himself is dying. And so, you know, Harry's progressively watching the people around him pass away, which I'm sure if when you get old enough, if you out, if you're um, lucky or unlucky enough to outlive your friends, every you know, people go through that. You know, that really kind of put a and some of them put a pall over it. It's yeah. interesting, but it's very a very bittersweet thing to read. Like we did get that one example where Harry plants in the ideas of the general. Mm-hmm. He plants in the head of the general, the idea of, of a flat tax, or uh, not a flat tax, a poll tax. Right. As a kind of an experiment that they're doing. And we get to see the outcome. Mm-hmm. And and that was like a little glimpse into, into how we're developing this. And, and then, you know, in, in Prelude, what there was the whole, which I... Found I found somewhat confusing and maybe self-contradictory this whole idea of how big a scale psychohistory has to cover because yes. Harry wanted it to cover 
it only works if it's enormous numbers of people. It's a statistical mm -hmm. science, which implies the larger the numbers, the more accurate. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, he reaches the conclusion that he has to kind of shave off the sample size so that he can throw out a lot of unnecessary noisy variables. And I, I don't know, does he need a big sample or a small sample? Like that, that seemed somewhat contradictory to me, but at least oh, no. it, Hmm? I mean, it seems to me that there are probably, you know, at some point, if you have a symbol, uh, um, and and this is me talking completely out of uh, out of ignorance because I'm I'm not much of a statistician. I think too large of a sample can be almost as much of a problem well, as too small of a sample. Well, I guess if there's too many uncontrolled variables, I mean, I think that was the that was the, the the point of that. So okay, but I mean, but a lot of that sort of happened in a way off stage. It it happened as a as an aha moment for Harry. Yeah, well, why should these be any different? Well, of course, <laughs> stuff happening off stage. Of course, that that is an Asimov thing, but but I'm just saying that the opportunity here was to, and again, I, it's a big ask, but the opportunity here was to try to try to show us the process, uh, try to show us how you get to some kind of enormous project, and and yeah, it's very easy for me to sit here and say, well, you should have done this, you should have done that. I'm not even saying what he should have done. I'm just saying that that he seems to have not done it. And that's, you know, that's always very easy to be critical. Uh, not so easy to actually say, well, this here is what really would have worked because I, I don't really have an answer to that. Well, you had a research group of increasing size who's working in this thing over decades. Yep. Um, and then they're almost reaching a dead end. And then they have the opportunity to basically build hive minds that are part of the, part of the process. And that could be a complete game changer I hear you. I hear what you're saying. And I'm here to say that it just sort of didn't really grab me, yeah. those parts of the thing. Dan, what do you think? You haven't really. Well, I'm, I'm now I'm, I've just been thrown by the phrase hive mind. <laughs> so uh, like, would, would we, should we delegate psychohistory to the Borg? To the Borg. Figure out. Well, no, but uh, you know, okay. I should have said gestalt, I suppose. <laughs> okay. But if you, you know, if you've got, several individuals yeah with their mentalic powers collaborating i yeah. mean you know because you know yeah. you work on something academically and you have you know, you, you know you have somebody to hash stuff out with and it gets you know it gets easier and it gets better because you're communicating yeah yeah um, no that's true and, i mean i like even you know for me i'm i'm in the humanities so like we all do our own little research projects and there aren't really teams but even there like anytime you go to a conference and get feedback, anytime you go through the peer review process, like maybe some of the peer reviewers tell you garbage and nonsense, but sometimes they tell you valuable, valuable things that you've missed. So yeah, I mean, there is, it's, it is inherently a corporate kind of process. So, uh, and, you know, I mean, Asimov knew academia. So like there's some exceptions to this, like, but in general, the the kind of view of far future academia seemed pretty familiar and is and is satisfying that way. I think, you know, as a general whole, like I agree with you, John. You know, I don't think that this these would have stood on their own, right? As starting the series from here. I think that it it really it it help, it works as almost fan fiction for his own series right and, and like if you're if you're already a foundation fan it is probably much easier to like this than if you were starting from this from scratch yeah um, i had the, yeah. i had the sorry to interrupt i had the phrase fan fiction in my head yeah because yeah. of the you know the tendency of fan fiction to go oh you know I, I, this is my favorite show and I want to go I want to be the person to go back and explain this and and it, this reminded me of that very heavily but go on no Sorry well that's I mean that's 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 pretty much it I mean it's you know it's fun like for me I still I still have fun reading these like I I have fun thinking about like Harry as the the prime minister even though it's it's kind of <laughs> insane <laughs> i i like i like watching that watching i i like reading through and imagining that scene of doors kind of like kicking ass all over the pal palace grounds 
for for no good story reason, <laughs> even <laughs> even though it you know as fiction like they're questionable choices, but it's it's just like amusing to read. So, you know, I can I I kind of enjoy it in that level as a fan, even while I recognize. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of plot holes. There's all mm-hmm. kinds of questionable kind of characterization decisions here, and, and it and it ends in this you know this really sad place. Um, but you know that's that's sort of the trade-off that one makes when one is a fan of something you know and no one was a bigger fan of asimov than asimov (laughs) (laughs) let me let me go back to what i was saying before and contrast something um when we look at when we meet harry in foundation he is a very confident user of psychohistory he has built the plan he knows he's not supposed to apply it to individuals, but he goes ahead and does it anyway, with a little bit of bravado, but predicting, you know, you have an 88% chance of being arrested, but only a 12% chance of being executed, uh, something like that, he tells Gail. Uh, but he has really very little hesitation. He's extremely confident, and he has this tool that he's using. And I have to say that I bought it. I bought into that use, that confident use of the tool. And when the second foundationers in second foundation are using the tool, and they're saying, well, we've, we've reached desperation level. We're applying this to individuals. Here's the things we've done to the plan. Look at the prime radiant. Look at the mess we've made. And there's the equations are there, uh, but we're going to do it anyway. We're going to go ahead and apply this stuff to individuals. There's a plan. We have to fix it. Again, I bought it. it even though they were in that desperation mode, they were confident users of an existing tool. And I bought it. I, and I, I said, yeah, psychohistory. This is a really cool thing. Somehow seeing Harry developing psychohistory in a very not confident way, very sketchy, very, you know, they did one experiment. I liked psychohistory less. I believed psychohistory less in those circumstances than I did when it was just presented to me as a fait accompli. Yeah, we've got this thing and look what we're going to do with it. And I was like, yeah, right on. Let's do it. It was like he was a wizard, you know, and he had he had he had his spell book. And, and there was no question that these things were going to work. Yeah, so actually a, 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 a thought that, that popped into my mind as you were saying that is, is a, a huge, I think, missed opportunity for the, the section where Harry is first minister is experimentation. You go saying, well, we've got this equation and it says that if you do this as first minister, this ought to be the, this ought to be the result. And so, you know, they could just be poking at the empire and seeing what happens. You are the control group. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like, let's, let's, let's just try some, something wacky and see what happens. That could, be guess the, of, could the have been a lot of fun. Implication was that psychohistory was not yet developed far enough right. that they could do that. I mean, I, there is, there is that one part, like there, there's, there's the general structure. Like if you remember there, they do come up him and Hugo come up with the conclusion that either the center has to fall apart or the periphery has to go and and so that that's kind of structured but but you're right it's not it's not very precise and they could have been they could have done a lot more with that um so yeah you know and I I think the general disparity in the confidence levels that you picked up on John like those that's absolutely there like in the original stories, Harry appears as an authoritative hologram. Like even that little prelude with Galdornik was written later, right? Right. Um, so, you know, Harry appears from the start as this voice of canonical authority, right? And, and the math is all there. And even as the series develops, the plan is all fleshed out. And kind of like of course in, in one sense like of course right when if we get a view of harry working out the plan it's going to be a bigger mess right so some of that is natural i think it, it it we might have been given a little bit more reason for for the eventual reliability of the plan than we are like the the prequels do lean kind of heavily on like chaos and mess and oh at the end it happens to all come together somehow but (laughs) yeah like maybe i mean what if we had seen like a little micro piece of the plan at work yeah like a a chapter that turned out had to have been completely planned by harry and Hugo, and that you know somehow 
everything in the end turns out to have worked out exactly as they expected it to. And you would have gone, wow, you know, they really used psychohistory there. And, you know, Asimov does, you know, that's interesting. Asimov does specialize in kind of pulling rabbits out of hats. Yes. So, so, you know, that would have been interesting to see. Uh, It is kind of a shame we didn't get anything like that. Yeah. Well, and there was also originally planned a fifth novella that we never Uh, got to see. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, as I was, you know, um, as I was, you know, thinking about this, I, and I, I think largely it just got turned into that, in, into that epilogue with Harry dying. But as I was pondering, as I was reading this, I was wondering maybe if which bits of this story might have actually originally been intended for that final story. Do That's Do we know what anything about that planned fifth? Story? I don't think so. Okay. I, I haven't run across anything. I mean, it, it, it's probably it might be out there somewhere. But I mean, you know, even early on, when I think it was the when the first story was published in 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 the the little editorial blurb at the beginning, and it's um, you're saying, well, we're going to have five installments if I, you know, if I if I live long enough to write them all, or something to right, that effect. Right, right, right. So where then do we go from here? We we have a bunch of Asimov essays and things that that might be interesting and, and shed some light on what he thought about some of these questions because he does talk about some of these issues. Uh, we have other books that he's written, things like The Caves of Steel and, and, and that stuff, which would be going even further back. We have the sequels. We've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, we should mull this over and then come up with a plan and announce it. Ooh, we shouldn't do it in front of the audience? Oh, Okay. <laughs> No, but I had thought that our original plan was, in fact, to go and look at some of these essays. And, and yeah, uh, uh, we'd have to figure out which ones, though. Right. Yeah, we got to do all of all of the stuff that I put up. Um, so, why don't should we talk about it and get back to people? Yeah. Yes. Yes, we should do that. All right. Well, is there anything else that we should cover tonight? Any last thoughts about the prequels and? where they stand where we stand sounds like that's a no i'm gonna take it as a no from both of you i'm just you know the thing that i'm left with wondering is after the great sack of trantor what happened to the mycogenians and their food like i i hope that knowledge of of high quality yeast production was not lost because that could be a great tragedy it would be yeah that's true I don't suppose there are any mycogenians in the foundation writing that for the encyclopedia. See, that's what they should do on the TV show. They should just that's have right. one guy in the background who's like bald and you know, wearing robes, <laughs> not explain it. He's over there playing with like a little aeroponics thing, making some yeast. Yeah. It should be an Easter egg for the rest of us. We'll go, oh, look, mycogenian. We know who that guy is. <laughs> they definitely need someone with a Dalite mustache on that show. Yeah. yeah, but but, but the Mikey Genie guy, they could treat him just like they treated Abed on, on Community. It would be perfect. <laughs> Foundation as other shows. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've we've covered it. The the sad ending of Harry Seldon, who gave so much to, to humanity to shave twenty-nine thousand years of barbarism off. Well, I guess I guess uh, it's yeah, it's, it's going to work out that way, right? Because the whole thing that happens in the sequels is going to happen around a thousand years after something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, I guess there, there's, a, there's an implication here in the prequels, one last thing, that that is Daniil's backup plan to the backup plan, right? Yeah. That Daniil is responsible for all that. So it's the, the robots get us in the end. <laughs> That's zeroth law, man. <laughs> but it makes it much easier to think about it it makes it much easier to be a three laws robot doing things that are best for humanity if there's only really one humanity yeah. all united mm-hmm. how much easier the bookkeeping is at that point for a robot to do what's right maybe that's what you know what daniel had in mind the whole time it's like this is mm-hmm. going to be a lot simpler if it's just one hive mind that i have to deal with instead of all of these crazy humans <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Could you imagine? Could you imagine a three laws robot during the Cold War? 
It reminds or me. Or, that, or, or Thorlaw's robot, actually. I don't know if it was the War. Saturday Night Live or or National Lampoon. You know, what if what if Superman had landed in Germany instead of the United States? Um, that, that's that that's a that exists. It's called okay. Red Sun. Was not Germany, but Russia. Yeah, there was a there was an animated adaptation of that uh, too. <laughs> That's cute. Oh, the, the, the number of things that are out there that you just don't have time for. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we will go off and we will discuss what's next for the podcast after the prequels. And next time we will, we will bring news of where we're going with this thing. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Well, that brings this week's episode to a close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe and give us a like and a positive review on your favorite platform. You can also visit our website at starsendpodcast.wordpress.com, where there's always additional content. Our music, used by a Creative Commons license, is It Is Coming by Alex Mason. Also, follow us on Twitter, at Stars End Podcast. Goodbye for now from the galactic capital of Trantor. This is where the stars end.